This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Environment Minister Catherine McKenna uh, referring to climate change as the climate emergency. And I'm thinking this doesn't augur well going forward. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff. And yet I'm reading uh, Ross McKittrick, who's penned a a couple of op-ed pieces of late in the Financial Post. He's an economist specializing in environmental economics at the University of Guelph. And uh, he pretty much dismisses all of this. So let's find out what's going on. And uh, in the interests of, of course, the truth and perspective, Ross McKittrick has joined The Oakley Show. Ross, good to have you back on board. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Good afternoon. All right. On the matter of, uh, you know the climate emergency or existential crisis of our time, uh, as I say, you dismissed this in your recent writings. By what authority? Well, uh, you're you're right. I mean, the quotes that you cited from people like Elizabeth May and Catherine McKenna, they're very compelling. Um, the problem is that when they say we need to listen to the scientists, and I go and look at what their own experts are telling them and telling us, there's a big disconnect. So um, this is not an area that I research myself. I'm not speaking based on stuff that I've done. But we do have reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and we've got information coming from Environment Canada. So in my op-ed today, because I've, I've been through this a number of times in writings with different people, so all I do in this op-ed is quote the conclusion paragraphs of these bodies on the issue of extreme weather. So if it's flooding, droughts, extreme precipitation, hurricanes, that sort of thing, uh, you can look up exactly the same information that I look up. And the message that I'm giving to people is if you read these reports and you read their summary conclusions, they don't talk about this being an emergency. In a lot of cases, they can't even specify any trends in the data on these things. And um, for example, in with respect to flooding, their conclusion is uh, there continues to be a lack of evidence and thus low confidence regarding the sign of trend in the magnitude or frequency of floods on a global scale. And uh, they said there's no compelling evidence for climate-driven changes in the magnitude or frequency of floods in the United States and Canada in the 20th and early 21st centuries. So I can't reconcile those kinds of conclusions in the expert reports with the daily utterances of politicians who are trying to tell us that we face an emergency because these things are supposedly trending upward and becoming more common. Well, yeah, that belies the received wisdom. I mean, we've had numerous people coming on, and I mean, you just follow the news on a daily basis. I mean, the CBC is now doing a whole series dedicated to climate change and the alarmism surrounding it. Uh, because, you know, well, the Fort Mac fire was a result of the changing climate. The flooding we saw this spring, you know, in the Muskokas, as well as out there in eastern Ontario, Quebec. Again, climate change is always cited. Tornadoes in the Midwest, and the American Midwest. So what you're saying is uh, the science doesn't support that there's linkage between these events and climate change. Um. I think that's the obvious conclusion. Going going back to tornadoes that you mentioned just a second ago, here's what the IPCC said in their report on this. There is low confidence in observed trends in small-scale phenomena such as tornadoes and hail because of data in homogeneities and inadequacies in monitoring systems. So their position is they don't have enough data to say that there's a trend, but they do go on to say on the specific question of whether greenhouse gases cause more tornadoes or not, the science is undecided. It could actually go either way, and so they don't take a position. 
So if you hear a politician taking a strong position on this, I'd like to know what their evidence is. Well, we've got a politician uh, in the Prime Minister who talks about evidence-based science uh, being the predicate for all of these policy initiatives, including a carbon tax and so on and so forth. So what are you saying? It's a house of cards? Well, what I would say is they must be very confident when they make these speeches that nobody's going to call them out, that nobody's going to fact-check them or challenge them. I think that's um, a sad comment on the kinds of journalists that they're used to being interviewed by, because the stuff that I put in, especially in today's op-ed, it really doesn't take more than 10 minutes. To, and I've got the links in there, so it's it's even quicker now. But um it's not difficult to find this stuff out. And it's not like it's only one or two scientists saying these things, whereas all the others are giving a message that sounds much more like the climate rhetoric. It's the other way around. These are the statements of the big teams of consensus scientists who are reviewing the literature, and there's a lot of literature behind these concluding statements. There are a handful that will go out there and make statements that go beyond what's in the the data. But um, this is just a remarkable case where there's a huge discrepancy between what is in the scientific reports that we're supposed to pay attention to and base our thinking on and what the politicians are saying. And uh, so I've written a couple of op-eds on this point, and uh, judging by the reaction, I think people appreciate uh, that this is being drawn attention to. I was going to ask, what kind of scorn have you drawn here? Because again, you know, it seems to me like uh, anybody who stakes out that position, even if they cite the science as unimpeachable sources like the IPCC or Environment Canada, shoveling sand against the rising tide. Uh, to wit, you've even written an open letter to uh, the Conservative MP from Milton, Lisa Raitt, uh, who, to my mind, is credible and honorable and all, but uh, even she backed off on a tweet. I guess she retweeted one of the findings from uh, somebody else who was cowed or intimidated into leaving the field of climate science. So, I mean, this is very concerning. The politics surrounding the issue have become, uh, well, I don't know, uh, what is the correct word for this? It's alarming to think that this is where we're being manipulated or languishing under a big lie, if uh, your assertions are correct. Yeah, I've found in the past year the the craziness of the politics has ramped up. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I'm used to the fact that there are some politicians that will make um, overheated speeches. But that's become mainstream now so that you re- you do have people talking about this as an ex- existential crisis and an emergency and um and that's that's new and I find it really weird. I don't know where it's come from because um we we've all of a sudden gone to a rhetorical extreme on this. Um in the case of Lisa Raitt, what happened is she uh, I'd published an op-ed last week telling the story of a, an American meteorologist who is very much in the mainstream in his profession, but I guess he made the mistake of, of announcing publicly, testifying before Congress what all these findings were. And he got so beat up and denounced and he was subject to a political smear campaign that he quit the field. And so Lisa retweeted this uh, article, and then she got so beat up and denounced for retweeting it that she deleted her tweet. So then I wrote this open letter to her to say, okay, do you see what's going on here? Do you see the pattern? This uh, this Twitter mob, the climate mob, 
is making it impossible to actually have a discussion on this. And this that's it's a very bad situation when we're considering really expensive policies and we're told the justification for the policy is this crisis, but we're not allowed to talk about the crisis. And we're not allowed to talk about the fact that the evidence doesn't support uh, what they're saying about it. But haven't we already crossed the Rubicon? Like, there's no turning back. Politicians, even if maybe uh, they're not subscribing to, again, the received wisdom, uh, they feel they've still got to do something to address climate change, put forth some kind of plan. We saw Andrew Scheer come out with one just the other day, and, uh, you know, Doug Ford's got a plan here for the province of Ontario, decrying cap and trade, but nonetheless supplanting it with something else. They feel they've got to do something because the polls reflect there seems, I'm not saying a consensus opinion, but there seems to be a critical mass of people who've already accepted that the climate is, you know, uh, havoc is being wreaked on the planet by a change in climate, so somebody better damn well do something about it, and you're suggesting there is no emergency. Yeah, well, I, I don't have a solution to the issue that you raised, that even politicians that we suspect might privately not really believe all the crisis rhetoric, but the polls tell them they have to announce something. Well, um, uh, I don't know what what to suggest about that. My role here is just to say, as someone who works in the field, on, uh, especially on the policy side, but also paying a lot of attention to what's being said on the science side, there's a big discrepancy here. And it matters. If, if the politicians want to say that the reason they're imposing this policy is hurricanes and floods and forest fires, then we're allowed to look at the data on hurricanes and floods and forest fires. And if there isn't a climate signal there, uh, or if it's very muddy and noisy and the experts themselves don't assert that there's a signal there, then that goes back to the justification for the policy. Well, the other problem is the uh, timeline. Some people would say some of these findings from the scientists go back, I don't know, seven, eight years, and things have accelerated since then. So it's outdated uh, evidence, as it were. How do you respond to that? Well, they were uh, making these claims seven or eight years ago. So it's not like uh, they've only started to invoke alarmism. But we are talking about the climate system, which supposedly operates on these big, long, 50-year timescales. So if we have a string of really cold winters, then they tell us, oh, well, that's just weather. That doesn't matter. That's not the climate timescale. So we're, we're only looking at long-term patterns. So they can't then turn around and say, well, we had a bad forest fire season last year, so that's suddenly climate. Um, no, we still have to look at the long-term indicators in the data. Also, um, I do keep an eye on what's current in the literature behind these things. It's not like this is all obsolete information. This is reflected in, in recent publications and updated data sets as well. So what well. are you saying? It's hidden in plain sight? Yep. Okay, well, uh, you know, I guess it confounds me that uh, there are not more people who are mindful of this, or at least engaging in a debate where they, uh, because to many, the science is settled, and there is no debate, no dispute. You can't even broach the topic, as you probably well know, and uh, Lisa Raitt probably found out the hard way as well. Uh, so let's just leave on that note that this is still open to discussion or debate. The science is not settled. Can we say that much? I think that's very fair. Yep. I appreciate your time as always, Ross. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ross McKittrick, again, economist, specializing in environmental economics and policy analysis at the University of Guelph.
Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 